When we shoot an arrow, we look to its fall. When we send a ship to sea, we look for its return. And when we sow, we look for a harvest. It is atheism to pray and not to wait in hope. A sincere Christian will pray, wait, strengthen his heart with God's promises, and never leave praying and looking up until God gives him a gracious answer. Richard Sibbs Welcome back to the Don't Knock It podcast, where we address misconceptions about Jesus' character, his church, and his word. By doing this, we hope to encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez, and the misconception I'll be addressing today is regarding the phrase thoughts and prayers. More specifically, the accusation that both are useless. So we have witnessed that in the wake of broken spirits, tired eyes, and heavy hearts, the last thing anyone wants to hear from their commander-in-chief, the one who apparently holds the power to change the course of history with a simple signature and prevent many more tragedies, is that his thoughts and prayers are with the families affected. When the unthinkable occurs, this phrase has become the fuse that sets off a wave of Twitter rage, peaceful and violent protests, and the punchline of every meme for that week. The phrase has become the pinnacle of political recovery as governors, mayors, and presidents scramble to give a statement post-devastation. This phrase seems to annoy us to the point of deep frustration and it becomes much more heightened when it leaves the lips of a person we dislike and despise seeing in office, whoever that may be. In their efforts to comfort all who were affected, our leaders seem to resort to the only thing imaginable in a time of grief, a cliché. Grief often presses us beyond logic and even language itself, which is why many of these high-ranking leaders turn to expressions that simply attempt to communicate an idea that no words will ever and could ever be enough when something terrible happens. Especially coming from a politician, it can seem like a superficial attempt to get credit for being sympathetic, rather than an attempt to truly feel what the survivors might be feeling. You've probably felt this way at some point in your own life. A friend, a family member breaks down before you in tears and you're the only one around to comfort them. You can't just log off Twitter, put headphones on and drown out the responsibility, go to the gym to release your stress and frustration. No, you. You have to do something. You have to say something. So what is there to do? What is there to say? You may have resorted to a cliche yourself. Everything's going to be okay. You deserve so much more. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You'll get through this. I'm here for you. Now picture that helpless feeling, that desire to hold someone whose world has, du- has just been shattered and multiply it by 330 million. That's the estimated population of the U.S. in 2020. How could you attempt to express condolences adequate enough to comfort those who feel like their whole world was taken from them and you could have done something to stop it? Honestly, I don't blame them. If I was given a matter of hours to get briefed on a recent tragedy, relied relied on by millions for comfort, and expected to execute some sort of change in a matter of minutes with the swift motion of my commander-in-chief pen, I would probably resort to the same thing. But do my thoughts, my paused mindfulness of what has just occurred, change anything? 
Do my prayers, my humble cries to an all-knowing God change his mind? Well, let's dive in. So what is prayer? Why do we do it? How does it work if God knows and decrees everything? Let me begin with what prayer is not. Prayer is not to get something out of God. This is a common misconception about prayer, and it has been for thousands of years. Listen to the way Jesus teaches about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So what does this reveal to us about prayer? This reveals that God is provider and intentional with how He answers our prayers. I love what Charles Stanley says regarding how God answers our prayers. He says, Since God knows our future, our personalities, and our capacity to listen, He isn't ever going to say more to us than we can deal with at the moment. Praise God for that. In this passage, Jesus actually presents this teaching as a corrective to both the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Jewish people. The Jews were guilty of being obnoxious and hypocritical in their prayer life. The Gentiles, guilty of being rep repetitive and inauthentic. What he's basically saying is the way you all view prayer is wrong. Being outwardly obnoxious and hypocritical is not going to provoke God to answer you. Neither is vain repetition going to do it either. This shows us that God is king, and we as servants under and we as servants under the king's rule are to live in a way that honors the king's directives and decrees. We are to live a life of submission. The beautiful thing about God is that he doesn't just slap us on the wrist or the back of the head in disappointment of how we have failed to obey him. You want to know what follows this corrective teaching? What follows is what is famously referred to as the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that declares God's primacy and acknowledges the need for our daily provision, pardon, and protection. We pray for God's will to be done, not our own. We don't ask things of God obnoxiously hypocritical nor inauthentically repetitive. So to sum up what prayer is not, it is not about changing God's mind, promoting our own desires, or provoking Him to improve our situations or the world's for our own benefits. Which leads us to ask, so what is it? What is prayer? The short answer to that is, prayer is intimate communication with God. A simpler way of saying is, prayer is, vulnerable, is vulnerably talking with God. The long answer is this. Prayer is a sincere and affectionate pouring out of the heart to God in Christ's name, by the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised according to His word, for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. Prayer is not asking God to align with our desires and to grant us whatever we ask, but to align our hearts and minds to His, to His promises. 
But Chris, what about the times in the Bible where it says that God changed his mind in response to someone praying to him? For example, in Exodus 32, when Moses is on Mount Sinai and the people of Israel are down below making a golden statue and having a drunken orgy, God confronts Moses and says that his wrath is going to burn hot and consume them. Moses then asks God to turn from his anger and in Exodus 32 verse 14, we read, So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. What's going on here? Does Moses' prayer convince God to change his mind? Was God just having a bad day? Do we really have the capacity to change God's mind like Moses did? So let's read what Moses prayed a little more carefully. Starting at verse 13, we read Moses saying to God, Turn from your burning anger and turn and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So what does this mean exactly? The text implies that God changed his course of action based on Moses' prayer. But here's the irony. This is what a careful, a more careful reading of the scripture gives you. God is the one who tells Moses to go down and see the situation in verse 7. Moses didn't know the people had corrupted themselves. God showed this to him. Additionally, the very thing that Moses used to change God's mind, per se, is God's own promise. Do you see what's happening? God had put Moses into a situation so that he would see the problem God already knew about, remember God's promises, and petition God to change his course of action. Moses' prayer itself is a result of God's plan. God wants Moses to ask this, so he sovereignly puts him in a situation where he will ask for it. The text is clear. Without this prayer, God would have destroyed Israel. It's plain to see. The prayer was instrumental in fulfilling God's own will to preserve his people. Now, you may ask at this point, well, what if Moses had refused to pray? Would that mean that they would not have been saved? See, that's the wrong question to ask and the wrong thing to focus on. Moses' situation proves that God holds people responsible for their sin while overseeing their actions anyway. And yet God uses the cries of his people in those situations to accomplish his will. So I would ask you, listener, think about your situation. Moses had his and you have yours. Here's your situation. Your situation is comprised of the problems you are observing and the divinely appointed opportunities in, the, in that situation. These are invitations to call God's promises into effect. Like Moses, God has sent you down into a family, a group of friends, or a neighborhood. Some of you may have already looked around at your family or your situations and thought, why did God make me part of this family? Why did God bring me to this job? If nothing else, he put you there to pray for them.
Now, to focus on the phrase thoughts and prayers, should we tweet that or share it on our Instagram stories every time a tragedy happens? Are they a waste of time? Do they work? Why did that become a trend in the first place? Let's look at another passage to figure that out. Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 through 9 read, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all and all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So that's the prayer part. And verse 8 continues by saying, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And that's the thinking part. So what is our response when, our, when a tragedy happens? Paul, who writes this while in prison, by the way, encourages us to make our requests known to God in a thankful manner in every situation, because he says in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. But why? For what reason? Why should my first and continual response be to pray? Verse 7 tells us that our hearts where our deepest affections come from, and our minds, where our thoughts and intentions reside, will be guarded by the peace of God. Prayer is for you. It's for you. It protects your heart from straying off to delight in something and someone other than God. It guards your mind from thinking evil or pessimistic thoughts towards the people around you, or maybe even towards God himself. Thankful prayer leaves no room for anxiety, slander, loss of control, or clouded and misguided judgments. Instead, genuine thoughts and prayers open the door to delight in and to set your mind on things that are true, honorable, pure, lovely, excellent, and worthy of praise. Let me ask you this. Would it benefit the people around you if you intentionally paused and thought and prayed about something before you responded? Before you offered your two cents on a subject? What if those around you did that? Would others treat you differently? Would you treat others differently? Prayer radically changes your disposition towards everything. It calms you down. It, it provokes thoughtful, intentional authenticity with what follows, whether their words or their actions. Yeah, but Chris, I'm just so tired of all these politicians responding the same old way for years. Lives are lost, and then they get up and say, my thoughts and prayers are with the families affected, and then we're left with empty promises and dead children with nothing to show for it. I want to see change. Listen, I hear you. I get frustrated too. I don't know if these politicians actually go into their prayer closet and humble themselves before God in tearful prayer. But if they do, if we all do, things will change. In that passage in Philippians we just looked at, verse 9 goes on, to, goes on to tell us, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. What things? Paul says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, which are what? Paul, the Apostle Paul, was suffering for the gospel, the cross of Christ. What happens when we think and pray about the cross of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished? It unlocks new empathy for, from us to the latest victims in the news. 
Christian love is never merely some humanitarian sentiment. Christian love is always rooted in the cross. As we repeat our meditations on the cross of Christ, we relive the bitterness of Christ's death. His suffering is brought near to us, which empowers the church to speak a word of hope to a suffering and dark world. As we linger long on the cross, it awakens us to injustices and gives us fresh words to speak, as well as it renews our energy to serve. As one of my favorite theologians, A.W. Tozer, says, I quote, If Bible Christianity is to survive the present world upheaval, we shall need to have a fresh revelation of the greatness and the beauty of Jesus. He alone can raise our cold hearts to rapture and restore again the art of true worship. End quote. Here's my challenge to you all. Thinking and praying on the cross will change us. So if you are still hostile towards this phrase or idea, let me challenge you with something. You know that 20 to 30 minute commute to school or work you spend listening to music? Or just mindlessly thinking of other things? Others spend that time asking God to change the hearts of these wicked people who commit these atrocities with tears in their eyes and frustration in their bones. They are pleading with God to be with the families who are heavily grieving. How do you cope? The gym? Work? Going on peaceful walks on the beach? Avoiding people who, who give you bad vibes? These people are on their knees late at night begging God to change the world through changing the hearts of those people. What are you doing? I don't mean that in a hostile way, I promise, but for you to consider these things. If you get triggered from the phrase thoughts and prayers because you believe they won't change anything or haven't changed anything, then you're implying that there isn't a sovereign God who listens to and answers the cries of his people. At that point, you're getting agitated and arguing from assumptions. The assumption that God isn't real, doesn't exist, and isn't responsive, which is never a proper way to go about things. It is impossible to know how much of human history reflects God's immediate intervention and how much reveals God's working through human agents, those who, who humbly submit themselves to prayer when others are committing themselves to other things. Now, I've gone on for too long now, so let me finish with this. Prayers not prayed will be prayers unanswered. If the Syrian woman with the demon-influenced daughter had not prayed to Christ, her daughter would not have been made whole. Mark 7. If the blind man outside of Jericho had not called out to Christ, he would have remained blind. Luke 18. God has said that we often go without because we do not ask. James 4. In one sense, prayer is like sharing the gospel with people. We do not know who will respond to the message of the gospel until we share it. In the same way, we will never see the results of answered prayer unless we pray. Consider the message of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God is perfectly holy and humanity is fallen and sinful. The Bible tells us that we have fallen short of God's standard and stand guilty before him. But because he loves us and desires a relationship with us, he sent his son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of our sins on our behalf on the cross. He was crucified, buried, and resurrected, confirming all that he had said while on earth, his entire ministry. The Bible tells us that if we turn from our sins and put our faith and trust in him, we are saved from the penalty of our sins and get to enjoy eternity with him, which begins when we put our faith in him. 
It's him, it is him and only him that I encourage you to seek out and to submit to, to delight in him before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Don't Knock It podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez. Grace and peace, family.